Welcome to this message from Journey Church. Our hope is that you'd encounter God and His purpose for your journey. Be sure to visit us online at www.journeykc.com. Get get your Bibles out to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. And uh, we're going to deal with just six verses in the chapter. But they are so dense and so rich, we've got to take the time to do that. So let's pray, and then we'll get going. Lord, we thank you so much for all that we've, we've seen happen this week, all that we've got to participate in, the fellowship, the, the fundraising, the just being with one another to celebrate you this morning. Lord, we just invite you into this time, and I just pray for your spirit to flow through this time in such a way that it's undeniable, breaking down barriers, breaking down walls, and that you would unite us in ways that we didn't even think were possible. And so I just pray that bold prayer this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Tell you a story about a pastor from somewhere on the East Coast, and he was, uh, he was at a pastor's, like a minister, minister's kind of alliance type thing in the city where all the pastors get together kind of encourage one another and, and have a meeting once a month. And as he was at this meeting, his, his, it was his turn to share all of the awesome things that they, that particular church was doing in the community. And all the other pastors wanted to hear about that. And so he just got through just touting all of these great things that their church were doing and all that stuff. And then he had to go back to the church. He had a meeting. So he's driving on the back, on his way back to church. He had this meeting. He was running late. Right in front of him, a car crash happens right in front of him. And the, the, the people, the, the car flips over. And so he's running late to the meeting and he's like, surely somebody, else, have you guys ever been in a situation like that where you're like, I don't really have any medical skills or anything like that. Surely somebody else is more qualified to stop and help. And so he just kept driving and he's like, surely somebody will help. And, and they flipped over. Well, it turned out, it turned out that the guy's worship leader of his church happened to be right behind him, saw the whole thing, saw the crash happen, saw that the pastor just drove on by, and this worship pastor needed to be at the same meeting that the pastor was going to, and so he's like, well, if the pastor didn't stop, then I don't have to stop, and so he kept going, and he, the same rationale, surely somebody will stop for this and help this, this person. Well, behind that guy was actually an undocumented immigrant who didn't even have a driver's license, wasn't even supposed to be in the country and was illegal in the country, sees the whole thing happen, sees the crash happen, sees that this thing is badly hurt. And at the risk of being deported, he pulls over to stop and help this guy. The car's getting ready to go on fire. And he pulls the guy out. The guy's busted up, bloody. And, and the hospital was just a mile or two away. And at the risk of being kicked out of the country, he, he decides to pull this guy into his car, bloody, getting a mess all over his car. And he drives him, uh, even though he didn't even, isn't he supposed to have a driver's license, drives him to the hospital. Which one of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who was injured? You see, what I've told you is the story that Jesus told. It's a story of the Good Samaritan. I made up that story that I just told you. But I told you the story of the Good Samaritan in a much similar way that Jesus told the story. You see, many of us know the story of the Good Samaritan. It's about this guy who was going from Jerusalem down to Jericho. And as he was going down to Jericho, he was beaten and he was robbed and he was left on the side of the road, left for dead. And along the way came a priest, came a pastor. A pastor came along the way and 
There's a guy that was beaten on the road, and he just was like, I, I don't really have time for this, and he went on. Well, behind him was a Levite. A Levite was a guy who served in the house of God, and he, he came, and he did the same thing. He's like, well, I don't have time to help this guy. Who's, I, I don't really need to help this guy. And then finally came a Samaritan. Now, we know the Samaritan as the good Samaritan, but in that day, they were not good Samaritans, according to the Jews. In fact, they were hated by the Jews. They were not called good Samaritans. There was a problem between the Jews and the Samaritans. And the Jews would not help this man on the side of the road, but at risk of of getting in trouble or crossing lines that he shouldn't cross, the Samaritan actually stopped, helped this man. He was busted up, bleeding, put him on his own donkey, took him into town, and got him the help that he needed. You see, Jesus told the story of the Good Samaritan in such a way that the hero of the story was somebody that they didn't necessarily think should be the hero. Now listen, I don't know what your enemy is. It may not be somebody in popular political climate who the enemy is. I don't know who your enemy is. Uh, It could be somebody political it could be the other side. It, it could be someone across the world that you don't know even. It could be some people group. It could be some religion. It could be somebody who sits across the table from you every single evening. I don't know who your enemy is. But here's what I do know. Jesus tells us to walk in love even towards our enemies. How we doing? How we doing? So Jesus tells us to walk in love even towards those who hate us. And maybe there's a little bit in us that hates them. So I don't know who your enemy is this morning, but Jesus encourages us to love them. If that's possible, how much more should we be able to love those in this room that we call spiritual family? How much, more should, how much easier should that be? And yet, it's hard for us at times to walk in unity with our natural family and our spiritual family. How many of you guys would agree with that? Okay. So, but if it's possible for us to love those who hate us, how much more should it be possible for us to love those who are near to us? For us to love those who, are, who share the same space that we do. So that's what we're going to be dealing with this morning. Whether you like it or not, that's what we're going to be dealing with this morning. All right. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. It says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. How many of you guys believe that every one of us have a calling? We've been called by Jesus, but I believe we also have callings or things that we're called to. Uh, you have been saved from sin, but you've been saved unto a calling. You've been saved from sin, but you've been saved for a purpose. It's not like God just saves some people and it's like, you know what? This person really isn't going to amount to much. They're just going to have to wait it out until I come back or they die, whichever happens first. I mean, it's not like he has some people that it's like, "Mm, yeah, not going to make it very well. So just sit on the side. No, every single person has been saved for a calling, but it's not all the same. You know, some people are going to preach. Some people are going to serve in the business community. Some people are, everybody has something. Some people are going to serve orphans. Everybody's got something that God has called you to. And many times, most of the time, it's multifaceted and multidimensional and multi-layers to it. It's not just necessarily one thing. 
All of us have a calling. But here's, here's the message this morning. It's not just enough to have a calling. We're supposed to walk worthy of our calling, according to the scripture. We're supposed to walk worthy of our calling. What does that mean? What does that look like? Well, we've all heard of disgraced you know, politicians or pastors or business people or you know, we've heard a lot in the news about some people who had high positions and they abused their positions and they fell and they got fired. And, and I remember years ago, there was a, the governor of Illinois at the time, Rod Beglorovich, and he, he had a, it was in a corruption scandal. And, and I remember watching that thing play out. He was the governor and he was being like, you know, investigated eventually. I think he's in prison right now. And what happened? He, he had a high calling. He had a high office, but he didn't live worthy of the office which he was holding. A lot of times uh, people in positions of power have a high office or a high calling, but they don't live worthy. And because of that, they fall. We say they fell. The, a pastor fell or the politician fell or they, they, what did they do? They took a high office and they brought it down low. Where now, what should have been, should have constrained them. I mean, if you are in a position of, of authority and a position that has high responsibility, you would think that constrains you to living up to what that is. But most of the time, it does not. And that's the challenge. And, and so they bring low the office. Instead, what happens is people begin to regard this guy or a politician or a pastor or whoever you want to say less than they did before. But what's worse than that? is that what happens when somebody in a position of authority falls, we not only regard them with less respect, we regard the office that they held with less respect. And so, how many of you guys would agree with that, that people trust the government less because of corruptions that have happened and because people have abused their power? People distrust positions, even churches, because of those things? Now, here's what happens. When we don't live a life worthy individually, as we are called, people won't only look at us with less regard as an individual. They end up looking at the calling of Jesus with less regard. And by our lives, we end up bringing down low this very high calling. And so it's not about works. It's not about that. But it's simply about the fruit of being called. And so what does it mean to walk worthy? Well, here he gives us a few little pictures of what it looks like to walk worthy of the call. We've got a high call, and here's what it looks like. Here's some of the ingredients. It says in verse 2, with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Is there anybody here who would just admit that you struggle in some of these areas? Me too. This idea of unity. This idea of unity that he's talking about, the unity of the spirit, is what it looks like to walk worthy of a call. See, a lot of people are called. A lot of people abuse their call and don't walk worthy of the call because they don't maintain unity. But unity is the mark of worthiness of the calling. That's what he lays out right in front of us right here. Unity. So when I say the word one, what do you think of? Do you think of one or do you think of one? See, it takes more than one to be one, doesn't it? A lot of people try to be, well, I'm, I'm one, I'm just myself. Now, one has two different meanings and too many of us are living as one instead of as one. But we are called to live 
as one. That's one of the marks of the followers of Jesus is that we live as one. The definition of unity is this, according to one definition, it's this, a harmonious, unified arrangement of parts in an artistic work. Do you realize that unity is supposed to be a beautiful thing? It's supposed to be. It's when you take all of these parts that are not the same, by the way. You see, we, we think that they all got to be. No, it's, they're not the same. And when they all come together, oh, man, it paints a beautiful picture. That's what it looks like to be in unity. How important is unity? I'll just pull out one scripture and show you just a little bit of the weightiness of unity. In Matthew chapter 5, verse uh, 23 and 24, it says this. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. The implication is don't even come before God. I'm just reading the scriptures, right? Okay, I'm not saying we have to build a whole doctrine. I'm just giving you a little, one little hint at sometimes how scripture weights this out a little bit. It says, don't even come, if you know that your brother, and, and again, this is not even you having something against your brother. This is if your brother has something against you. That you go and take care of that for the sake of unity to come before God. That's pretty weighty. Do you realize that Jesus even prayed for unity? Jesus prayed that we would be one. How many of you guys think that what Jesus prays is pretty important? That was one of his few prayers was that we could be one. Now, I have a personal problem with this. I have a personal problem with this. Let me tell you my personal problem with this. There's not one person on the planet that I 100% agree with. <laughs> How many of you guys are with me? There's not one single person, not my mom, not my dad, not my wife, not anybody I've ever met in my life that I 100% agree with. There's not one person on the planet. How many of you guys know somebody that will just argue over the stupidest little smallest things for hours, even if it's pointless? How many of you guys know somebody like that? I'm that guy. I am that guy. I would do that. Because there's not, I will argue, I mean, the, the littlest things, it doesn't matter if they're big, they're little. And there's not one person I agree. So how can I walk in unity with someone else if there's not one person who I agree with? This must be saying that it's possible. That, hear me now. This must be saying it's possible for us to walk in unity even if we don't agree. Let me say that again. This is saying... That we can walk in unity even if we don't agree. Even if we don't agree. So I want to give you a couple thoughts about unity and how this might play out in your family, in our spiritual relationships, and even your relationships with coworkers or whatever. And, and the first point is this. Unity happens not because we agree on everything, but because we agree on important things. Let me say that again. Unity happens not because we agree on everything, but because we agree on important things. And that's really a key. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 4 begins to lay out what are the important things for us as the body of Christ. You ready? Here's the list. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. You see, unity happens not because we agree on everything, but because we agree on important things. And here he gives us what the important things are. 
This is the list right here, the important things. One body, one spirit, one, one uh, hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, one Father of all, over all, through all, in all. That's the list. The list, this is the list. Now, you may have your own list. You may say, well, my list has some extra things on that that I think I need to agree on with somebody before I can walk in unity. Well, that's fine. But I just want you to know that's your list. And it's an unbiblical list. It's not God's list. Okay? You can have that list if you choose, but you will have a struggle of a time trying to walk in unity with anybody all the rest of your life. So as believers, these are, now we may disagree about certain things. We may have certain flavors in certain churches and stuff. But as believers, this is, these are the one things. Okay, this is the list. You may have another list, but that's an extra biblical list. It's not God's list, okay? So we have to agree, not on everything, the important things. Here's the important things. Now, if you have unsaved family members or you have people that you work with, you may have to apply this principle in different ways because they may not agree about one God and one faith and all that type of stuff. And you may go to Thanksgiving dinner here in the next month and you may say, well, we don't agree on this thing, so we can't walk in unity. You know what? You can still walk in unity and agree not on everything, but even with your unsaved family members on important things. You don't have to agree on politics. Come on, somebody. You don't have to agree on which football team or what baseball. You don't have to agree on any of that stuff. You can agree to love one another unconditionally. You say, I can't do that. Yeah, you can. Because it's not in your strength. It's in God's strength. You can agree to, to give grace to one another. You can agree to, to be in fellowship with one another because you're family. Those are the things you can't agree on. Relationships, hear me now, relationships are more important than issues. And until you settle this in your heart, you will be struggling no matter what church you go to, no matter what marriage you find yourself in, no matter what friendship, no matter what business you work at, you will struggle until you get this down in your heart. The relationships are more important than issues. There are some issues that are important. I listed them out. Everything else is not that, okay? So, Unity happens not because we agree on everything, but because we agree on important things. Second thought on unity is this, and how we get unity is this. Unity actually happens through the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Unity happens through these attributes that are key to each one of the persons of the Trinity. Let's see it here in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11 through 14. He says this, Finally, brothers, rejoice. Listen to this. And this will help all of us. Aim for restoration. If you have brokenness in relationships, aim, make this your aim. Aim for restoration. Don't aim to be right. Don't aim to make a point. Aim for restoration. And comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I'm not taking this one literally, guys. I'm just letting you know that one. Okay. All the saints greet you. And then here's the verse, verse 14. We see the attributes that are, are that we see in, in each of the persons of the Trinity. The grace of the Lord Jesus. How many of you guys know that Jesus came with grace? Grace comes with Jesus. The love of God. How many of you guys know that, that it says in, in 1 John that God is love? And the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was sent to be with us, right? So we see all of these three attributes of love, grace, 
and fellowship. These are three ingredients for unity in any relationship. And we're going to flesh that out here as we walk through this. But I want to talk about that, that Good Samaritan story again and how there were three people in the story that had trouble with unity. Three people. And I'm going to replace them with my modern day version of three people who have trouble in the area of unity. And the first one is what I call the narcissist. It's all about me. Whenever you find somebody in a relationship like this, it's like, it's all about me. The whole relationship is about me. The whole relationship, it's got to serve me. It's, it's about me. I don't really think about anybody else. Uh, psychology today describes a narcissist in this way. Uh, if you are this, don't nod your head. If your spouse is this, don't elbow them right now. Just be motionless just for the next few seconds. All right. A lack of empathy for other people. A need for admiration. People with this condition are frequently described as arrogant, self-centered, manipulative, and demanding. Narcissists also have the ability to feign humility and turn circumstances around in any relationship to give the appearance that they are the victim rather than the perpetrator. The narcissist. You may have experienced this. You may be some of this. Uh, in fact, I'd say there's a little bit or maybe a lot of narcissists in all of us. We are the selfie generation, by the way. So there's something about all of us that wants to be focused on self. Now, when you, when you bring that into a marriage, that's a problem. When you bring that into a church, that's a problem. When you bring that into a business, that's a problem. Whenever you have a narcissist come in. So uh, we could say it this way, that the main enemy of God is not the kingdom of Satan. How many of you guys believe Satan's been defeated? The main enemy of God, I could say, is actually the kingdom of self, not the kingdom of Satan. Because the more we close in on ourselves, the less space we have for God to flow through us or to other people. So what is the antidote for the narcissist? Well, we see the antidote right there in the Trinity, that God is love. The antidote for the narcissist is love. Love is not about self. Love is all about other people. You don't have to feel love to give love. You choose love. You can give love even without anybody giving you any love back because love is a choice, not a feeling. And so the antidote to narcissism, if you find that in your life or in your relationship, is simply to choose love. But the problem is we're all focused on how we are compared to other people, and we want to constantly keep that competition up. It reminds me of a, a story I heard about a guy who was walking along the beach one day. He found some special-looking pot thing. He opens it up. A genie pops out. Genie pops out. It's a true story. Uh, Genie pops out and, you know, thanks him for releasing him from the bottle and says, all right, because of this, I'm going to give you just one wish. Now, here's the thing. Whatever you wish for, your mother-in-law is going to get twice whatever you wish for. So if you wish for $10 million, she's going to get 20. If you wish for a, a mansion built for a king, she's going to get a mansion twice as big built for a king or a queen. So he thinks, he's like, oh man, what kind of trap is it? So he thinks about it for a long time and scratches his head for a little bit. And he says, all right, here, I got my wish. He said, all right, go ahead. I want you to beat me half to death. <laughs> I'm just letting some of you slower people come and get it as it waves across there. Okay. Because we're always trying to compare how we're doing to other people. But how many of you guys know all of us really, and deep down in our heart, we want love? 
It's a basic human need, actually, to have love. Even when we screw up and we know we've messed up, we still long for love. Do you realize that everybody else around you longs for the same thing when they mess up, when they haven't been perfect, when they have not lived up to your expectations? Some people will even act out to get attention because they long for love so much. Back when I was a youth pastor, there were multiple times when teenagers would attempt to commit suicide. Now, some of those were legit attempts, but some of them were simply, they were not legit, they were simply cries for attention. They simply, as we got down to it, they were simply trying to see if anyone cared if they were still around because they wanted to be loved so much. And so you could say, that the opposite of love is not hate, it's really apathy, or I don't care, or I'm more focused on myself. And so love is the solution. If we want unity, we have to choose love. Can you think about a relationship right now that you're struggling in? I'm telling you, one of the things that might be some of the salve that comes into that relationship is simply choosing love even when they don't deserve it. Even when they don't deserve it especially when they don't deserve it. The second person I would say, we have the narcissist, it's all about me. The second one is what I call the legalist. It's all about them. They haven't lived up to what I expect, just like we talked about. They, they're not doing enough. They're not living up to their end of the bargain. We see in Luke chapter 10, verse 25. This is the start of the Good Samaritan story. It says, and behold, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test saying, teacher, What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Again, this is not a real question. This is a test question. Okay, he's trying to trap him and trick him. And he said to him, what is it written in the law? How do you read it? So Jesus is pretty savvy. He turns it back on him. And he says, well, uh, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to them, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. So now he's kind of put back on his heels. But desiring to justify himself, he says, yeah, but, but who's my neighbor? And then he goes into the Good Samaritan story. And most of us approach living with others, loving others this same way. Yeah, but but who's my neighbor? Who qualifies to get into my circle of, of love? Who qualifies for my grace? Who qualifies? Most of us live like that. And what we we think, well, what have they done for me lately? Well, you know, they've, they've definitely infringed against me over here, but they haven't done anything good for me either. And so they don't qualify for love or grace. How many of you guys know that is like antichrist? That is not Jesus. That is anti-Jesus. That spirit that I'm going to have to make somebody live up to expectations that I've put on them before I can give them love and grace. We're good at justifying ourselves just like that lawyer was. And we, man, we're ready for a debate. We've debated. With, how many of you guys have debated with people in your head that you aren't even having a real conversation with? And we are really good. We're really good in our head. I mean, we're awesome in there. We win every time. Every time. It's, it's awesome. Until it comes to real life and realize the damage it's doing to your soul. And, and we're like this lawyer. Jesus didn't answer the question. I love that about he, he didn't answer too many questions. He usually asks a question. He turned the tables and he says, he says this. He makes the point. Whoever shows mercy becomes a neighbor and therefore has a neighbor. It's not what has the neighbor done for me. It's whoever shows mercy, that person is the one who becomes a neighbor. So we are encouraged. If you want to live out the mission of God on this planet, it's not about finding a neighbor. It's about becoming a neighbor. 
to the people right in this room, first and foremost. That's what it is. It's about becoming a neighbor. And it's not about what have they done for me lately. It's about how can I be a neighbor to you? That's, so, so, so the antidote to the legalist who has all these lists of, people, of, of things other people should do in order to, to receive their love, the antidote is what Jesus is. And Jesus is grace. Jesus brought grace. The antidote to the legalist is grace. We've got to give grace to other people. How do you guys believe, though, that it's hard to give grace? How many of you guys are married? And married people? How many of you guys think it's hard to give grace in a marriage? It's hard to communicate to your spouse in a marriage, isn't it? How many of you guys have ever had trouble communicating and you just get all flustered communicating? Reminds me of another story of I heard, heard of a, a lady who, a wife who took a trip uh, to Europe and she was in Italy and she calls back to her husband and she's getting ready to do a tour of Europe and, and she calls back and she's having a conversation and, and communicating is hard in a marriage. And so uh, they're trying to work this out and they're talking, well, how are things going back at the house? And they're having a little chit chat. And so she, uh, she asks him, well, well, how's my cat? And he says, well, the cat died. She screams, she drops the phone, she's just, I mean, just loses it, picks up the phone and says, why did you have to tell me that my cat died? Why did you tell me that? And he said, well, that's the case, the cat died. And, well, you didn't have to tell me that over the phone. He's like, what do you want me to do? She said, well, you know, when, when I, I got to Paris, you could say that the cat's up on the roof. And then when I got over to London, you could say the cat's up in the tree. And then when I, I got over to, to Barcelona, you could say that the cat fell out of the tree when I called back home. And then when I got back to New York, you could say, as we talked, that you, you pick up the phone and you say, honey, I took the cat to the vet. And then when I, I get back home at the airport, you show up and you, you, you hug me with a big, sincere hug and you say, honey, I'm so sorry, but your cat died. And he said, I'm sorry, honey, I didn't understand the protocol of how to tell you that a cat died. <laughs> so they're working this out, a long pause, and she says, by the way, how's mama? <laughs> She's up on the roof. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard to have grace sometimes for each other, isn't it, in communication? It's hard to have grace in relationships, but it is essential. Gra relationships don't happen without grace. Grace is kind of like the oil, the salve that keeps it flowing. I've discovered this. The closer I get to Jesus, the more I should have love and grace extended for other people in my life. The closer I get to Jesus, the more grace should flow out of my life. And I'm finding, I'm being honest, I, I've really struggled. Let me just be real. I've struggled in this area. But I am finding some hope that the longer I follow Jesus, literally the more supernatural, and not natural, but supernatural grace and love I have for people. You know, as a pastor, I get a lot of those arrows from time to time, and a lot of relationships come and go. And, and I found, even in the last six months, just a supernatural grace and love for people that shouldn't naturally be there. And it's such a freeing thing whenever you can just let the love and grace of God flow through you. Now, I'm not perfect by any stretch. In fact, I've messed up relationships in this room. I've had friction with people. I've messed up where I've said wrong things, done wrong things, feel horrible about different things that you think should have gone a different way. I've, I've been there, done all of that as your pastor, messed up. But I'm discovering 
that as we keep leaning into Jesus, we keep asking and receiving his supernatural love to us that it can flow through us and his grace to us that it can flow through us. And situations where I should not in the natural have grace or love, I'm finding supernatural love and grace. And that's an encouraging thing. That's an encouraging thing. Because the truth of the matter is this, it doesn't matter what we do for God if we can't love people. And that's a true statement. It doesn't matter. And you can go back and read 1 Corinthians chapter 13 if you'd like as just a little extra commentary on that. All right, so there, there's another person in this story. And we think of the three people in the story of the Good Samaritan as the priest, the Levite, and the Good Samaritan. But the Samaritan didn't have problems with unity. He crossed lines. There was a third man in the story who was actually the one that had problems with, with it, it, that could potentially, I'm, I'm surmising, have problems with unity. And we don't normally think about this guy as really being a character in the story, but he is the injured man. See, the Samaritan didn't have problems with unity, but the injured man is on the side of the road, and I'm sure, imagine being in his situation where he just, anybody who came up to him, he would meet with fear, with skepticism, at arm's length because he'd just been beaten. You see, the injured person says this, it's broken, so it's not about us anymore. The narcissist says, it's all about me. The legalist says, it's all about them. The broken or injured person says, it's so broken, it can't be us anymore. There's no way. And unity can't happen. Do you know what the antidote, this is going to surprise you, the antidote to brokenness is actually fellowship. It's not to pull away. It's not to segregate. The antidote to being broken is to come together, and it's that third part of the Trinity, fellowship. When you put love, grace, and fellowship together. You see, here's the truth of the matter. If you've been injured in this room through relationships, maybe even by people in this room, I get it. It's, we're at arm's length. Okay? We, we walk around, and we may pass by each other, but internally there's a lot more space. But here's the reality. If you've been injured this morning, you can't do it on your own. You can't heal on your own. Do you realize the broken man on the side of the road, he couldn't fix himself. He needed someone to come and to pick him up. He needed, what he needed in his brokenness was fellowship. And I'm telling you, if you've been injured in this place, what you need is not to stay on the side of the road, it's actually fellowship. The one thing that you're holding at arm's length. The very thing you need is fellowship. What does it do for you whenever you step into this and you say, well, it's too painful. I know. Which is more painful, to lay there bleeding and dying on the side of the road or to encounter by chance someone who might step in and lift you up? Could you get beaten again? Absolutely. Absolutely. But it's about time. You only live once, right? About time we roll the dice. And if we get beaten, we roll the dice again. Why? Because that's what we're instructed to do. What happens when we do that? What happens when we fellowship, when we have unity? I'll tell you what happens. There's a, I read this in Dave Ramsey's book, Entree Leadership. He used the example of a Belgian horse, which is one of the strongest, if not the strongest horse in the world. But one draft horse can pull 8,000 pounds. Pull 8,000 pounds. These things are massive. They're strong. Two, you would think that two Belgian horses would be able to pull what? 16,000 pounds, right? Eight times, 8,000 times two. 
But it's surprising. The weird thing is if you hook two of them up together, they can't pull 16,000 pounds. They can actually pull somewhat like 20 to 24,000 pounds when they're pulling together. It's really surprising. But here's an interesting fact. If you take two horses, two Belgian horses, that have known, that know each other and work together, they can't pull 20,000 to 24,000. They can actually pull almost 32,000 pounds together when only one of the horses can pull eight. But the world record with two Belgian horses pulling together who had known each other from birth all their life, the world record was 50,000 pounds. When one of them could only pull 8,000 pounds. See, here's what fellowship and unity does for you. Unity and fellowship multiplies strength. You will only be as strong as your fellowship. You will only be as strong as what, is, as what, what parts that you say, well, I, I'm holding that. If you are holding it at arm's length, you can, your strength will not be multiplied. But if you link up with people, then your strength gets multiplied. But let me just tell you, this last point, this last thought is this, because if you're thinking, well, I'd love to have that. I would love to be a part of that. Here's the truth that it's going to be the painful thing to, to hear. And here's the challenge. I don't have specific challenges. I just got a challenge. And it's this. Unity happens actively, not passively. Unity will not happen. You say, well, I'm just going to wait for unity to lock in or not lock in. No, it will never happen that way. Unity happens actively, not passively. How many of you guys have heard of that word Compassion. Remember, Jesus was moved with compassion. Why did it say moved with compassion? Because that word moved, or that word compassion means to have the bowels or the very inside of you move towards something. It's like, it, it's yearning. It's to ache from the inside. It's kind of like what happens after you ate Pastor Aaron's chili after last night. It's just it's something is happening there on the inside. <laughs> just making sure you're awake, Okay. It's what we feel for other people. In other words, compassion. If you say, I'm a compassionate person, you are only compassionate if you move. You are only compassionate to the degree you move towards people. That's it. It's what we feel for other people. Now, Christians throughout the centuries have been moved to compassion for unsaved people, even so much to sell themselves into slavery, knowing they would never get out to reach people because they were moved to compassion. You say you have compassion. Well, if you're not moved, you don't have compassion. I've shared this little illustration before, but I think it's important. There was a guy who uh, fell into a pit and a bunch of different people came around to kind of uh, analyze the situation. And this guy's stuck in a pit. He can't get out. Uh, the Christian scientist says, you only think that you're in that pit. <laughs> the Pharisee came along and he said, only bad people fall into the pit. The compassionless fundamentalist said, well, you deserve your pit. The charismatic said, just confess that you're not in a pit. Just, just confess that you're not in a pit. The Methodist uh, said, we brought you some food and some clothing while you're in the pit. The Presbyterian said, this was no accident, you know, this is no accident. Some of you guys who haven't been in church, you're not going to get some of this stuff. That's all right. The optimist said, things could be worse. The pessimist said, things will get worse. Jesus came along and lifted the man out of the pit. Listen, I don't know what pit you're in. Pit of despair, pit of depression, pit of, of disunity. Do you realize that Jesus is here right now to lift you out of it? 
love, grace, fellowship can lift you right out of that pit. So I want to just ask you a question. What is one step I could take to move towards unity this week? One step. Is it a phone call? Is it a text? Is it a conversation? Is it putting your arm around somebody? Is it saying, I'm sorry, I forgive, I'll step towards? Is it something internal in your heart that you just need to turn your attitude towards someone and smile again instead of having a running conversation that's negative on the inside? What is one step that you could do that you can move towards love, that you can move towards grace, that you can move towards fellowship and unity? And you can simply ask God, God, how can I walk in fellowship with these people once again? How can I walk in fellowship with my kids once again? How can I walk in fellowship with my spouse once again? How can I walk in fellowship? And ask the Holy Spirit to give you supernatural revelation of what that looks like. And as we close up the service this morning, we're going to receive communion. I think it's important for us to receive communion because the Bible talks about it being one table, one body. There's something very symbolic about us coming together and sharing in the life of Jesus this morning. There's tables in front and in back that you're going to come during the, the song and receive these elements. And then we're going to go back to our seats and we're going to sit side by side with one another. And I really wish, we can't do this, but I really wish we could make one huge circle of chairs that would connect us all together. So if you would, you could just imagine that, that we're all connected and just facing one another because we're all part of the same, we're all sharing. Uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23 says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We proclaim what Jesus did on the cross, but other parts in scripture also say that we proclaim that we are one. And that's what we're going to do here this morning. We're going to proclaim that we are one. As we come and we get the juice, which represents his blood, the cracker, which represents his body, we're going to be making a statement to anyone who might peek in or hear about or watch or might be curious here this morning to see how we act as followers of Jesus. We are one. That's what we do. That's what we do. Now, the next scripture says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Unworthy. Remember, we, we just talked about at the very beginning of the message to live worthy of the call. And here it says, receiving in an unworthy manner. What's, what's he talking about there? Well, if you skip right before the verses I just read, it talked about the disunity that they had in their church and how they were being selfish. They weren't showing grace, grace and they'd broken fellowship. And they had had, they've been receiving communion in an unworthy manner. So what are you to do if you find yourself in that situation, maybe in your marriage, your family, your church right now? Here, here's the next scripture. It says, verse 28, let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Can we take a moment and just examine our hearts this morning? Would you bow your heads, close your eyes and just examine your own heart? The good news about the gospel is, Jesus has done everything he needs to do to set you free right now. He's done everything he needs to do to give you love, supernatural love, supernatural grace, supernatural fellowship with one another. 
So examine your heart right now. If the Holy Spirit brings anything to mind, just make note of it and say, Lord, I repent. Lord, I repent. We all have to do that. Lord, we come to you right now. We thank you for your blood that was spilled on the cross. Thank you for your body that was broken for us. And Lord, as we come to your table, we are saying that we are one with you. We're one with each other. In Jesus' name. We hope you enjoyed this week's message. For more information about Journey Church or to browse our media library, visit us online at journeykc.com.